0: You're listening to the Ayn Rand Institute Live podcast series. Ayn Rand interviewed with Mickey Spillane by Mike Wallace. Philosopher and novelist. In her novels, The Fountainhead and Atlas Shrugged, she's challenged some of the most fundamental beliefs of modern man, beliefs which most of us hold. She's an advocate of reason, individualism, and complete pre-enterprise. Ms. Rand, you are certainly... Uh, one of our most controversial social critics, novelists. Who, in your estimation, is the best living writer in the world today?
1: The best living writer, from the aspects of originality, imagination, color, sense of drama, and above all, magnificent plot structure. And the writer who has been treated most unjustly by the alleged literati is Mickey Spillane.
0: We knew that's what Ayn Rand thought, and that's why we've invited both of them tonight, Ayn Rand and Mickey Spillane. His Mike Hammer mystery stories, while being attacked by the critics, have sold more than 70 million copies around the world. In the United States, Mickey Spillane has written seven of the ten bestsellers of the 20th century. Why does Ayn Rand consider him the best living writer in the world today? Tonight on PMEs, we'll get the answer to that and other questions from Ayn Rand. And Mickey Spillane. Roused so much antagonism and denunciation from various critics as has Ayn Rand, and the same can be said about Mickey Spillane in the field of adventure and mystery writers. Yet, as we've noted, Mr. Spillane has sold 70 million copies, and his new novel, The Deep, will probably up that total by a few million more. As for Ayn Rand, her novel, The Fountainhead, first published back in 1943, is still a strong seller, and Atlas Shrugged has helped her to launch a growing philosophical movement called Objectivism. Her latest book, a collection of essays, is called For the New Intellectual. No two writers would seem to be more different. Ms. Rand takes about seven years, seven years, to write a novel. Mr. Spillane writes his in two or three weeks. Ms. Rand no. writes about architects, uh, scientists philosophers and businessmen. Mr. Spillane writes about cops and robbers, private eyes, and their girls. Mickey, before we ask uh, Ayn Rand why she thinks that you're the best living writer in the world, let me ask you about your own view of your own writing. You've called your detective hero Mike Hammer a state of mind, the most satisfactory character you could imagine. Why? What's so satisfactory about Mike Hammer?
2: Right now, Mike's hard work has enabled me to support a nice, large family. And uh, to me, he's satisfactory in that respect anyway.
0: But there must be something about the fact of Mike Hammer himself more than the fact that he sells books for you in conjunction with his various lady companions.
2: Well, I can take out a lot of what they call hidden antagonism, I guess, on things of the world I don't approve of, using old Mike as the hammer.
0: Are you Mike Hammer? Is he your personal image of what you'd like to be?
2: No, he's a state of mind. I told you that. You know, funny enough, I never, I never described this man. And everybody has a, his own singular image of Mike.
0: He's you know, I can't, I can't say that, that you have ever described him in, in great detail. Uh, how does he contrast with most people whom you see around you in your daily life, Mickey?
2: Oh, he isn't like them. This is a hero. And as Anne said one day, he's the last of the public heroes. But he's a man who refuses to be taken down. I never never like to see him pushed too far without the explosion coming. He's a man who's definite in his approach to what he's doing. Takes no nonsense. He's determined and he's dedicated. And uh, with a character like that, you can pull up a good story.
0: And there are no people around you today who are dedicated and who go after what they want and get what they want. There are far- right, people There are
2: people. Oh yeah, Fine. They're around. but you got to dig them out.
0: about uh, two or three weeks ago, Mickey, I was at a social gathering. Ayn Rand was there. You arrived a little bit late, and you greeted her with the following words: You said, "It's good to see there are other giants in the valley. What does that mean? Who are giants? And what kind are other people?
2: Oh, the giants are those who are determined to get what they're going after. So many people today are they're herded. They're shoved around. They they won't fight back. They take this attitude that you can't fight City Hall. And to me, I I can't stand that. You can fight City Hall if you want to push. You can't stand around and just be just let yourself be one of a mob that goes this way and goes that way. Somebody cracks a whip and you go. And uh I find it aims like that, too. She's not going to be pushed around. She's determined to push herself, if necessary, to get what she, what she thinks is a definite object in life.
0: Yes. So, we've gotten some view of Mickey Spillane's idea of a hero. Uh, what is yours? Well,
1: I might astonish you. And I hope you will give me time to explain fully. Sure. But in essence, my idea of the hero is the same as Mickey's, except that every concrete... Is different. The details are different, but what counts in literature is the essence, that which distinguishes the person from all other persons or characters. So my idea of a hero, such as John Gold, is a man who acts on his own judgment, who is an independent sovereign consciousness. He selects his goals, he selects them rationally. He is confident of his own rightness, and he pursues his goal. If I were to sum up in one proper abstraction what Mickey was saying concretely and what what I'm saying philosophically, his type of hero and mine have one crucial human attribute, self-esteem. When you say a man will not allow himself to be pushed around, the reason why he won't is because he values himself. A man of self-esteem will also know that if he wants something, it's up to him to achieve it. And he is confident of his ability to achieve it. In other words, it's an efficacious man instead of a helpless, determined amoeba, which is the prevalent view of men today. A, a helpless, determined amoeba? Determined by forces beyond its control. The view prevalent in our culture and literature today is that man is a helpless piece of driftwood, and some literally call him an amoeba, mm-hmm. that he has no choice. About his life, Uh, he couldn't help it, is his basic slogan. He is miserable, futile, helpless, impotent. Where do you you get the
0: idea that that is the general view of the writers uh, and philosophers of today?
1: Well, I would say open practically any book today. There's very rare uh, exceptions. Just read any novel and see whether helplessness, despair, and futility isn't the theme. The basic view of life. Now, you see, Mickey Stewart and I see men as capable of controlling his own life, choosing his goals, and achieving them. This is what makes us the last of the romantic writers. Or rather, the first of their return.
0: Where, where does self-esteem come from? How does somebody achieve self-esteem, in your estimation?
1: Uh, by knowing,
0: realizing,
1: that he has no form of knowledge except his own mind by realizing that he has to live in reality and that therefore evasion, the evasion of the responsibility of choice and judgment is evil. One achieves self-esteem by total reliance and accepting the responsibility of one's own moral and intellectual
0: judgment. Well, give me specifics now when you say evasion of the responsibilities of judgment, for instance.
1: What do you mean? I mean saying, in effect, I don't know what I'm doing or why I'm doing it. Or I couldn't help it. Acting like any of the heroes of Tennessee Williams or Salinger or a few other names of that kind. Acting like what we call a drunken driver. That is, going through life without knowing what you are doing or why.
2: And then yelping, I couldn't help it.
0: You agree with Iron Mickey?
2: Completely. That's the funny part of it. You see, in our, in our stories, uh, Irons book, like Atlas. She starts on a basic premise and works through. And her hero has, as she said, set a goal. And he achieves it. Now, of course, I don't write such a lengthy book, of course. My character reacts to a given situation, he doesn't create it, but the situation is suddenly there, he reacts to it, and then he sees it as character completion in a way that justice actually has triumphed. It's a, Once again, it's a case of good guys over bad guys, to put it simply, yet he determines his own course. Nobody else is going to force him into their way of thinking, and he emerges right in the end, too.
0: And do you feel the same way that she does about writers' life? She mentions Tennessee Williams J.D. Salinger. You you feel the same way that
2: they're... I agree. No, I'm... Again, strangely enough, we're in complete accord on that. That facet of this.
0: Are you two old friends?
2: No, we met for the first time... Uh, uh, two months ago? About two months ago. We were going to spend a few minutes together. And a few minutes lasted into about six hours. And since then, we, yes, we've been good friends.
0: Yes. Thank you. All right. Now that we have set the stage for uh, the next 20 minutes or so, let's take time out for a break and when we come on back what I'd like to do is tell uh, have you tell us each of you how you began to write, how you began to be storytellers. We'll be right back with Ayn Rand and Mickey Spillane.
2: Talking
0: with two best-selling Writers, authors, Ayn Rand and Mickey Spillane. We'll get the difference in a while between writers and authors from each of them. But first of all, I'd like to find out, Mickey, how, under what circumstances, did you decide that you wanted to be a storyteller, and how'd you go about it?
2: Well, I've always been a storyteller. Now, as a little little boy, I lived with a lot of people who didn't have too, many, too much of an imagination. And there was no greater thrill than taking these people with no imagination and setting a stage and setting it properly. The graveyard story is true. What graveyard? Well, we had, in Elizabeth, New Jersey, we had an old graveyard, and we had a bunch of very superstitious people around there. And I was the only one who worked for the graveyard. Now, I was never big. I was always sort of a small boy and a lot of big boys around me. And when we were away from the graveyard, they were always real tough characters. But the minute we got near that graveyard was my coat they were holding on to because I was the only one that wasn't afraid to go through there. But with a couple of other friends of mine whom I had convinced earlier that don't worry about the dead ones, just worry about the live ones. See We had pulled this big old hoax, the sheep and all, and... Got him to come up behind the, the tombstone, and as I let him in there, telling him this weird story, I had them all personally involved, and I was going to show them this grave of this that belonged supposedly to a man whose house they had best around, and it was an old haunted house thing. And we got up there, the first kid came up behind that thing with a sheet on him, and my golly, you never you never saw so many tombstones knocked flat and kids running on top of them. But that started me off, I think, and other things like that. But the reason I started to write them was I needed the money.
0: Yes, I know. Why do you keep writing? You don't need the money. Do you enjoy writing? Do you enjoy writing now and about the adventures of Mike Hammer for the same reason that you wanted to scare the kids or show them that you were a bigger guy than you were back in the old days?
2: No, I like storytelling. I enjoy that.
0: But you're not an author. You're a writer.
2: I'm a writer. No, there's a difference. A writer... There's one whose primary and sole occupation is writing. An author is, a, is an author. I say the difference is that a writer will make money. An author takes a chance on it. A writer can write consecutive things, and they will be good. An author may have a one-shot, maybe two, but that's not their primary source of occupation. And you can read into a book whether this person is a writer or an author. Are you reading for fun? Did it entertain you? If it was really solid entertainment and that person can continue to write, you're probably reading the works of a good writer.
0: Who was who some other good writer?
2: You mean in today's mystery field that I'm in? In any field. I'll say Frederick Brown. I'll say John D. McDonald. And I stay with the mystery field uh, almost completely because it is my field. Rex
0: Stout, Carter Brown?
2: <laughs> Not Carter Brown. I'm sorry.
0: Why? Well, What's meant with Carter Brown? Oh. Uh,
2: Let's not get into that, will you, Jesus? You know, I don't like people to make a a laughing stock out of the mystery field, so uh it's bad enough I say what I say about him privately without this. Rex Stout? No, no, Carter Brown.
0: No, I I, I we passed uh oh. Carter. Now now we're at uh,
2: uh Rex Stout I don't read. Why not? I it's not the type of thing I read. It's too light. It's too uh it doesn't deal with anything solid. I don't like his characters. So uh And
0: when, how, where did you start
1: to write? Well, I decided to be a writer at the age of nine. Really? Consciously. And uh, I was making up stories long before that. But at nine, I realized that this was the profession of a writer and decided that that would be my profession. Now, the reason I started making up stories is that I discovered in magazines for children that stories about people could be much more exciting... Much more interesting than the kind of children or adults that I saw around me. I wanted something better. I liked the idea of projecting, ma- making real the kind of people and events that I could admire. My motive was I wanted to look up. I don't like to look down. I don't like to despise people. I don't like to feel them. I wanted people I could admire. That's what I wanted to create.
0: That was my motivation. You found nobody around you to admire?
1: Uh, not at that time. Except you, in fiction stories.
0: Except in some fiction. Do you find... whom do you admire? Among living living people here in the United States or around the world, who are the two or three human beings whom you most admire in the world today, huh? Well, I
1: admire Mickey Spillane as a writer. I may not agree with him about many things, but at yeah. literary t- skill, at literary technique. And I underscore literary, not merely entertainment. As high literature, Mickey, I admire Mickey's feelings. Of public figures, of figures known to the public, nobody today, but I can promise you that there will be a few in a few years.
0: But there's no human being on the face of the earth whom you admire today.
1: As a full personality, no. I can admire certain traits or aspects of many different characters, but as a person, As a symbol of human greatness, no.
0: Why is the world in such a state that there isn't one living human being... ...whom you can point to and say, that's a fella?
1: Because in the present state of our culture... ...if they exist, they would be underground. They would not uh, rise. They would not make themselves known. Or at least, it would be made extremely difficult for them. They would not be the fashionable ones. However, as we're changing the philosophy of this culture... They will emerge.
0: And you think we're going to change the philosophy of this culture?
1: Yes.
0: You think that you are in objectivism?
1: I and those who are objectivists,
0: yes. And what is objectivism going to do to our culture, I? Free it. In what sense? In what fashion? If you want me to
1: say it just in the briefest terms possible, because mm. I can't go into long explanation now, it will stop collectivism. It will stop the worship of physical force and brutality. It will bring man back to a civilized view of life. The essence of which is that no man uses physical force against others. Then art, achievement, everything good can be practiced by men and can appear on earth. Under the rule of brute force, under the rule of a collective to which you are forced to belong, nothing but destruction and mediocrity will surround you. And today the mediocrity of our public figures public The mediocrity and the superficiality are
0: appalling. And when you talk about our public figures, you mean our current administration, our past administration, our Christian leaders, our Jewish leaders?
1: I mean those who are either cultural or political or literary leaders. Those who determine the dominant trend of our culture. That is what I would call cultural leaders. And today, I see nothing but mediocrities with very rare, temporary, and partial exceptions, which never last very long. Okay. And the best example of it is, if you ask me why, take a look at what our literati have done to Mickey I mean the critics? I mean the critics and the kind of intellectuals who are illiterate, who do not know how to read who are out of focus while they're reading, who want words to suggest something kind of approximate, who resent Mickey Spillane for his best virtues, for the fact that he writes about heroic men, that he writes purposefully, that he sees men as moral, and when they throw that broad mind at him and at me, that his characters are black and white. Uh, They're not human because they're just too good or too bad. The same thing which is thrown at me. The motivation behind it is the rebellion against moral values. They do not want people to be either good or bad. They want grayness. Moral grayness, spiritual grayness, and stagnation. What they resent is the idea of morality and of moral judgment playing any role in human existence.
0: You're not just sore at the critics because the critics have taken you up and down a little bit too.
1: Now, why would I be sore
0: at, excuse me, cockroaches? <laughs>
1: I'm, I'm giving them certain stature. Why should I be sore when I predicted that that's what they were going to do?
0: You feel the same way about literary critics generally, Mickey?
2: Well, I don't feel about them anymore. more. I gave them up on a long time ago. I don't worry them. They don't worry me. I know I bothered them. I don't think they stay up late at night anymore worrying about what I've said about them. See,
1: they don't matter, but what matters is the kind of alleged intellectuals that go around repeating the half-backed nonsense which they read somewhere when they accuse Mickey Sturane, for instance, of being an advocate of violence or sadism when he is the exact opposite of. Well, let Lenny me... is a moral crusader, and they are... He's a moral crusader?
0: crusader? Do you regard yourself as a
2: moral crusader, Mickey? I never thought about it until I brought it up, but now I think it could be possible.
0: Let me quote a passage for which I think just about every critic has attacked Nicky Spillane. In I, the Jury. Is that your most successful book?
2: Well, they're all running neck and neck. That was the first that's been on the stands longer, so I'd say yes.
0: In I, the Jury, Mike Hammer vows to kill a murderer, and after a long and desperate search, he finds out that the murderer is a woman that he loves. As he confronts this lady with the proof of her guilt, she slowly and seductively undresses in front of him. And finally, and I quote Mickey Spillane, she was completely naked now, a sun-tanned goddess giving herself to her lover. She leaned forward to kiss me, her arms going out to encircle my neck. Then Hammer shoots her, and he describes it this way, quote Mickey Spillane. Slowly, she looked down at the ugly swelling in her naked belly where the bullet went in. How could she? How could you? she gasped. I had only a moment before talking to a corpse, but I got it in. It was easy, I said. Now then, that is not, as the critics suggest, dying uh, gratuitous sex, violence, sadism.
1: Most certainly not, and only the most superficial kind of reader would ever think so. Because now let us analyze what is the meaning of this thing. And you have given a very good synopsis.
2: But he left out an important paragraph that almost explains that whole thing. Right. Because between the time... Immediately after he shot her, he stood up and he turned around and looked at what was behind him because he knew there was a motive behind what she was pulling. And the gun was lying there right behind his head, lying there on a small table. And had he allowed her to kiss him, she would have gotten that gun and his his brains would have been all over the room now.
1: Well, I can understand. I can understand. This is the practical setup, but I would like to point out what is the actual dramatic meaning of the scene and why. Yes, what what is is the the actual opposite opposite of sadism? You have here a man.
0: It's the opposite of sadism. The
1: exact opposite. Well, well, let me tell you what I see in that scene, and this is how I read it long before I ever met Nikki Stewart. This is the greatest dramatization of integrity. Uh, Now, let me explain this. You have a story of a man who has a sworn vengeance. He's dedicated to a certain purpose because his best friend has been brutally murdered and other horrors happen during the course of the story. He is fighting the mysterious evil that is causing all these horrors. That is his crusade. Now, in form, it's a detective story, but the abstraction a man dedicated to fighting evil would apply to any moral issue. Now, here we have a man dedicated to fighting evil. At the same time, he's passionately in love, and through the story, it's very convincingly established how much this woman means to her. He thinks he's found the ideal woman, this is his great love. The climax, which is magnificent dramatically, comes when he discovers that the murderer he had been seeking is the woman whom he loved. Now, here is his choice. Either he will be weak and give in to his emotion and drop his values and ideals. In other words, surrender to her seductiveness at the price of his own integrity and his belief in his own values, ignoring or evading her evil. Or else he is going to say that nothing can come higher than his sense of justice, his integrity, and his purpose. Therefore, when he says it was easy, it gave me an emotional shock when I first read it. Because here is what is so obvious in the line. The greatest sacrifice he could have made, the greatest tragedy that he had to destroy, the woman he loved, was easy to him if that woman no longer represented his values. His integrity was not tempted.
0: That's pretty eloquent understanding of what you... Is that the way you wrote it? Is that what you were thinking about?
2: This is exactly what I had in mind, and the other thought behind it was, too, if he does surrender his integrity and he does surrender his values, at that moment he's also going to surrender his life because she'd kill him.
1: He would then have been destroyed. All right. Now that is a moralist
0: climate. We've got to go away for a minute or so again. When I come on back, though, I'd like for you to explain this to me. After we booked you two people on this program tonight, we called maybe 10, 15 other prominent American writers, asking them to come on in and discuss writing, With you, not critics, but your colleagues, your peers. And when? Nobody would come. (laughs) Nobody would come. And when we come on back, I'd like for you to hazard a guess as to why. We'll be right back with Ayn Rand, Mickey Smollett. Back again with writers... Ayn Rand, Mickey Spillane. Now, as I said just before the break, I think that we probably talked to somewhere between 10 and 20 top writers who live in this area. We talked to a good many of them. And all for one reason. They they weren't unkind or anything, but they all had something else to do. They really just didn't want to come. It was the inescapable conclusion that we arrived at. Why would you imagine? They didn't want to come and sit and talk writing with Spillane and Rand.
2: What do
0: you think then? I, I don't have to
1: guess about
0: it. I can answer it with certainty.
1: When you consider that they see men as a mediocre non-entity, out of focus, and they write about nothing but their sensitive feelings, they despise plot. <coughs> when plot structure is the most demanding, the hardest, and the most valuable aspect of literature, <coughs> funny when they go through the motions of saying that they've dispensed with plot, they dispense with character, what do they do? They write moods. And then compare that with the kind of strict intellectual discipline and skill and structure that has to go into my writing and Mickey's writing. Paraphrasing the remark which I didn't originate, but which was made to me, the fact is, If Mickey and I are writers, those modern fashionable ones are not. It's either or the moment when we will be the recognized fashionable intellectual leaders of the culture, they would not be allowed into the anteroom of a publishing house. Not by law. I mean by cultural standards. There would be no room for phoniness and pretentiousness. Writers would have to work if you ask me, what proof proof of that do I have? Our sale. The proof there is the illustration of the cultural break between the people in America and the alleged intellectual leaders. Leaders who believe that value consists of being an incomprehensible, mystical elite, so that if you happen to sell, you cannot be good. If you don't sell, you have, of course, superior value. Now why do we sell? Because the majority oh, no, of the people of let these. me finish. Right, the majority now. of the people are not corrupt enough to want to exist without values. On different levels and different things, what Mickey Stallone and I appeal to is the idealistic, the value element in people, the element that wants to achieve goals in life and to see man as a hero. The element that does not want to give up as our literati do. Now, that is our proof of our objective value, and that is what we will never be forgiven by the enemies. And I'm glad that we're not, because we couldn't really appear in the same room uh, with any of us.
0: Mickey, uh, do you think that's, that's the reason why they wouldn't come?
2: Well, I've always said that literature is what people read, and I've always gone along to thought that success is going to be a proof of something. But one day I was being badgered by uh, quite a well-known writer. And it was about the time this book came out that mentioned the fact that of all the uh, the ten bestsellers in the fiction field that had ever been written in the past 60 years, I had seven in the top ten. Well, I had only written seven. And he was castigating me no end, And I was getting a little aggravated. And he was saying this is a terrible commentary on the reading habits of the American public that I should have seven in the top ten, you know, and my answer to him was, look, you're lucky I didn't write three more.
0: (laughs) The, uh... I'm afraid that if I mention some names, I will embarrass the people who turned down uh, the opportunity to appear with you. So let me go to a recently dead writer uh, who obviously could not have been asked to appear. What is your view of uh, Ernest Hemingway as the writer? I'm going
2: to say this... I didn't read much Hemingway. I read The Old Man in the Sea, and that was it. How come? Because I started them at other times, and I just couldn't quite get into them, and uh, that sort of ended it right there.
0: And The Old Man in the Sea was not a hero to you?
2: I don't go for that type of story, let's say. I tell, mystery stories happen to be my forte. I like them, I enjoy them, I work with them. But the old man in the sea, no, it wasn't a hero story. This was a story of despondency, despair again. Nothing was built. Nobody won. Who won? The sharks won. Uh-huh.
0: And uh, you just want humankind to win, 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 win.
2: Well, I think they should be put in a position where they certainly shouldn't lose. To what?
0: Fate? To circumstance? Right, and what about you and Ernest Hemingway?
2: Well, I would say
1: he's, uh... Not the worst writer that has lived. He has certain qualities. Um, He's a writer more than some um, others today. However, I agree with Michael on one thing. The hopeless, fatalistic despair of his view of life. He can write well on occasion. But the sense of life, his view of man's relationship to life, is that death wins and that we exist only in order to die. Well, if it is true, why should anyone bother? The fact is that we, uh, men do not live in order to be concerned with death. They live in order to enjoy life. That we are going to die is of no importance to anyone who is actually living his life to the full. The people who are so concerned with death simply confess that they have never lived
0: properly. Of course, by the gold standard which the two of you was set up, he was fairly successful. I dare say he's even richer. He was even richer upon his demise than Mickey Spillane. Oh, mm-hmm.
1: Mike, I, I want to challenge you on the gold standard. I know I think you interrupted me hmm. uh, for that very purpose, and, and I want to correct it to this extent. Sales alone are not proof of either value or lack of value of a book, but it's sales plus the reason for those sales. A lot of very bad books sell, too. Uh, it isn't just that, but it's... Uh, kind of sales, the kind of popular attitude, the kind of readership response that Mickey and I achieved versus uh, the two and a half copies in someone's private elite which has been proclaimed great literature, not for any reasons. It might be great literature, but when you're told that it's great only because one authority or another feels like it, when it is all an issue of some undefined mystical feelings, then all you can say about it is that it is a contemptible fraud and that no culture dominated by it is in a healthy
0: state. Mickey, we have just a minute left and I've heard from Ian that she presently respects no public figure on the face of the earth.
2: Who are the men or women whom you most admire? You mean in the business field? In any field at all. Well, I don't pick out any special one. I pick out a person who's Attitude I like toward life. I don't like the way people work, but as a man who has an attitude and contempt toward the innocuous slobs that seem to dominate public life today, I like Howard Hughes.
0: Howard Hughes. Now, why can you?
2: Well, here's a man who has contempt for the kind of people who are ineffectual in business and in other phases of life, and in his own way, he shows it. Yet here is a man who, by his own efforts, has brought himself up to the top, and he does what he wants to do. And he might have had a rough life, and it might have been a disastrous one emotionally for him on occasions, but still he maintains that fe- that attitude and that feeling, and under certain conditions, he could have been a, a hero. I like him.
0: That's the uh, gets It's one to nothing. Howard Hughes to nothing. Thank you very much, Ayn Rand, Mickey Spillane. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Ayn Rand Institute Live podcast. Subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. You can also find us on YouTube. If you like this content, please share or leave us a review. For more information, go to aynrand.org. Audio licensed courtesy of the Bentley Historical Library, University of Michigan.